0: After months of Russian assaults in the east of Ukraine, the war is at a pivotal moment. Russia has poured men and material into taking the city of Bakhmut, and it nearly has, but at a huge cost. Meanwhile, expectation is high for a Ukrainian counterattack, utilising new Western weapons and freshly trained troops. But as the toll of the war builds... Does Ukraine have the means to take on Russia again? And what would it mean for Ukraine if its counterattack were to fail? I'm Bernice Harrison. This is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the war in Ukraine in the balance. Phillips P. O'Brien is Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St. Andrews. He's the author of two books about military history and editor-in-chief of War and History magazine. He's a regular contributor to Atlantic Magazine and he has his own Substack blog where he writes about the war in Ukraine. Phillips, welcome to the podcast. Or in fact, welcome back, I should say, because... You spoke to in the news almost exactly a year ago, and that was around the time when it was becoming really clear that the Russian army wouldn't have everything their own way in the invasion of Ukraine. And you talked about why that was, how Ukraine's army was far better than a lot of people realised, while Russia's was far worse. In the years since then, has the war progressed as you expected?
1: do I mean, I want to say yes, but yes. I mean, as I was trying to say then, the strongest the Russian army ever was, was on February 24th, 2022. That was the most well-trained army it had with the most up-to-date modernized equipment. Since then, it has lost a massive amount of soldiers and equipment. It's replaced the equipment mostly with older stuff from storage that isn't as good. It had a lot of trouble replacing the soldiers to begin with. It had that sort of mass conscription in September of October, which generated a lot of soldiers, though their quality is mixed, so that ultimately the Russian army is less effective as a fighting institution now than it was on February 24th. The trajectory has been negative. And you can see that with what they have been able to do. You you compare the offensive of the last few months around Bakhmut and Advika versus the first battle of the Donbass last year, they're fighting on a much smaller area, making tiny gains, and and I would say achieving almost nothing. The Ukrainians, however, have been getting on the whole stronger. And what do I mean by that? Yeah, they have had their losses. The Ukrainian army is now much better equipped uh, than it was on February 24th, 2022. It's had uh, a range of artillery systems. It's now getting main battle tanks and armored personnel carriers. So it's really a much more capably armed force. So its trajectory is getting stronger and its soldiers are getting experienced as well. Uh, so the basic thrust of the war is one that is that has been based sort of similar for the last 14 months and and that is Ukraine is getting stronger. Now, what Ukraine does is not what Russia does. Russia seems to go for these tiny little offensives, constant efforts to take strategically unimportant towns like Bakhmut. The Ukrainians try to save up and do significant offensives like they did last fall when they liberated a great deal of Kharkiv uh, Oblast and when they liberated Kherson Oblast on the, the west bank of the Dnieper River. And we'll see soon whether they can do that again. Um, they're gearing up for a counteroffensive now. But they should be able to do that from a much greater position of strength than the Russian army has done it when they've attacked them in the last few months.
0: Phillips, as you say, Russia has been on the offensive since the start of the year. We've been calling it, I suppose, the winter offensive. What were the goals of this Russian offensive? And how much has it achieved?
1: It's a funny. I mean, Russian were making seems to be just hyper-political as opposed to strategic. And what do I mean by that? They w- want to take things to declare victories. So they want to take Bakhmut. They want to take Atvika. Well, last spring, they wanted to take Severodonetsk and Shansk. So they want to take a city or a place to declare a victory to sort of say, okay, you know, we've done something, we've gone forward, we've achieved it. And that seems to be what's driving them. So the amount of resources they've expended to take Bakhmut, and they're close to taking Bakhmut finally, by the way, they got to the borders of Bakhmut about 10 months ago. So it's taken 10 months to get through this tiny little city. I think it's the 70th largest city in in Ukraine. Um, It's political. They're trying to do it to show that they can have a victory, that they can achieve something. Whereas the Ukrainians, I would argue, fight strategically far more sensibly to try and actually damage the Russian army.
0: Can we just talk a little bit about uh, Bakhmut specifically? You know, as you said, Ukraine has hung in there. It's been controlling and defending the ever smaller sector of the city. We've seen it on the news. It's a wasteland. It seems now at the time of recording that uh, they may be about to pull out entirely. Now, at other stages of the war, Ukraine has given up territory when Russia's attack became overwhelming. And Ukraine was praised then for, you know, for saving its strength and living to fight another day, for using its resources wisely, as it did when it carried out its own very successful counterattacks. But in Bakhmut, Ukraine has chosen to prolong the battle at a huge military cost in terms of weaponry, but also people. Why?
1: I tried to actually write this in my most recent piece in The Atlantic, which was, what is the Ukrainian choice on Bakhmut? Now, what was fascinating is the Russians were unable to do what we would call a simple military maneuver. The Russians were on both sides of Bakhmut. Had they been able to do advanced combined armored warfare, they would have tried to surround the city. That's the obvious thing. They were actually around it on the north and south. They can't do that. So, what they've done is they've been funneled into the middle of Bakhmut, where they've been fighting for street by street by street, where the Ukrainians have been on the defensive. The Ukrainian government, and I actually think this was the wide choice. I know some people have criticized them, but I think the critics overreacted to a, a period in late February and early March. The Ukrainian government's view is this is the best way to destroy Russian forces, is to make them go into Bakhmut. And therefore that is what we'll do. And the one thing Ukrainians don't want and this is something they haven't wanted for months and months, is for the Russians to go on the defensive. But we're still, Russia occupies almost 20% of Ukraine, depending on, I think it's like 18 or 19% of Ukraine is occupied by Russia. Ukraine is going to have to try to get them out of that territory. The last thing the Ukrainians want is the Russians to dig in to that territory and sensibly go on the defensive. I mean, the Russians were they fighting not this political war, but a war to actually try and harm the Ukrainian military would be going in on the defensive and would have gone on the defensive months ago, knowing the Ukrainians are going to have to attack. So the Ukrainians were faced with the reality of the Russians would attack at Bakhmut. They needed Bakhmut for a political victory. They needed something. They needed to actually say they've had some success this winter. And so the Ukrainians said, all right, if they're going to take Bakhmut, That's where they're going to throw their forces in, and that's where we're going to make them fight. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of reporting about Bakhmut that has been based on narrative. By that, I mean, you know, they talk to soldiers. My friend has died, and this is horrible. But it's not actually looking at the overall strategic impact of the battle. And the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian military people I talked to had a very clear-headed view of why they were doing what they were doing.
0: Okay, so if you're right, and it is advantageous for Ukraine to prolong the battle in Bakhmut, then like, why has Russia just simply, and given the vast loss of life that we, we think is happening and the destruction, then why has Russia not realized that? <laughs>
1: Russian strategy seems to me to be fundamentally flawed. They've always thought they're stronger than they were. I mean, look what they thought last February when they invaded Ukraine with this half-assed plan. Don't ask me to explain (laughs) Russian strategy because it really makes no sense to me. And I've, I've been saying that from the beginning. I don't understand what the Russians are doing, but they seem to be doing what they're doing for their own vision of a political success.
0: You're an expert in military strategy, Phillips, in your writing for a general audience uh, on social media and in the Atlantic magazine, one bit of terminology I picked up was culmination. The idea that a military campaign is planned, executed, and then eventually eventually, culminates. Or in other words, you know, it runs out of steam and it's time for everybody to stand back and take a breather. And that happens whether the campaign has been successful or not has the winter come has the russian winter campaign now culminated
1: prussian theorist Clausewitz talked about a culmination what is fascinating is that by sort of normal Clausewitzian standards the russians should have culminated a while ago because they were expending a huge amount to take very little but the russians have decided not to culminate and so they go pressing street by street by street So, I mean, one assumes that other than a few streets in Bakhmut, they've made almost no advances for weeks now. So really, they have culminated almost everywhere on the line, except for Bakhmut. But it's not, you know, Bakhmut, they seem to be just about now to take in most of the city. I mean, the Ukrainians seem to be pulling back. By this point, the Ukrainian decision seems to be it's not worth... Uh, expending any more of our forces for Bakhmut. We've we've done what we wanted there. So one would imagine if the Russians take Bakhmut, they will at that point culminate. Though The Ukrainians would love it if they didn't. The Ukrainians would like the Russians to keep attacking in this very destructive way that they do for their own forces. The last thing the, the Ukrainians want is the Russians to sit back and sort of dig in.
0: Well, now we've talked about the Ukrainians' defensive strategy, but let's talk about Ukraine's offensive. You've said that the defense of Bakhmut bought time for Ukraine to build up its reserves of military personnel. But one thing Ukraine doesn't control is its own supply of weapons. The West, uh, led by the US, has sent Billions worth of weapons to Ukraine and more all the time, but some, including Ukraine's leaders and you, have been critical of the pace and volume of that supply. Where, Where is that now, Phillips? Does Ukraine have enough weapons to carry out an offensive while continuing to defend itself?
1: We will see. I mean, it's a really tricky question that what in many ways Ukraine is being asked to do is far more ambitious than anything a NATO country would be asked to do. It has been provided a significant amount of modern weaponry by NATO, though interestingly, by NATO standards, it's actually mostly older equipment. We're talking, you know, HIMARS or a 1990s system, you know, that a lot of these tanks, you know, the Leopards and the Abrams are actually older generation uh, Abrams and Leopards. But they're going to be asked to do an offensive, for modern combined arm offensive without air superiority. You know, they haven't been given NF-16s. They don't have control of the battlefield. Now, if you're looking at a NATO state, you know the United States would, first of all, seize control of the air, but Ukraine is not going to have that luxury. It's not been provided with the right kinds of equipment to seize control of the air. So what Ukraine is going to do is very, very difficult, and it's needed time to prepare for it. Again, just logistically, they are now integrating a range of systems, none of which they had any experience on a year ago. You know, they didn't have any of these, these Western tanks, they didn't have any of these Western APCs. They were basically dealing with old Soviet slash Russian equipment. So they're having to retrain, retool their entire armed forces for the offensive. They need time to do that. What they're trying is very risky. Uh, I personally would think they should have been better armed and they should have been given a much better air campaign, or sort of air superiority attempt. I still think they can make some very significant advances, but I think we have made it harder than it should be.
0: You talked about uh, retooling and retraining for an offensive. I- I'm assuming that's this, you know, long-talked-about spring offensive. It's it's now May. Um, has any such counter-offensive started? And if not, when do you think it will?
1: Well, this is the interesting thing. The Ukrainians have-, have basically been playing a fascinating game of saying, oh, it's now, or it's a month from now, or, you know, it started in February. The Ukrainians will do it, I think, when they feel they have a chance to do it. and uh, There's no reason they need to start it in April or March or even May. Could be June. The key thing is they will do it when they feel they have the best chance to, to inflict a massive defeat on the Russian army. Um, and I think they're looking at the Russians now and they say, you know, we need time to get better. The Russians are still weakening themselves in the offensive. So as long as the Russians are weakening themselves, we're going to, you know, let them do that. And then we will strike when we feel we can. So, I, I mean, I've actually been talking about this on my substack for weeks. I, I don't think it's necessarily imminent. I and mean, the spring, you know, there's no reason it has to be the spring. It can be the summer. It will be. They, they in their minds, they think they really have one significant chance at this, and they're going to do it when they feel ready, when they feel the Russians are at their most vulnerable. Clearly, they don't feel that right now. It could be imminent. It could be a week or two away, but it could be another two months.
0: So, whatever about timing, are there any places on the map now? That are suitable for Ukrainian attack, either to take back territory or to defend, to, to actively defend territory.
1: There seem to be lots of them. And that's the other thing. The Ukrainians are sending fascinating messaging about where they might attack. And basically, they drop little hints that it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. So that a few days ago, they were talking about oh, you've got forces now on the east bank of the Dnipro in Kherson. Now, that would be a tricky place to actually launch an offensive because they don't have a working bridge to get supplies over. Uh, Most people were talking that they would go right through the center of the line uh, to try to to head down towards the the, the town of Militopol, that area, to try and split Russian forces between east and west. But that's where the Russians are now probably in their deepest defensive. So other people are saying, well, you know, maybe all the way over um, near the eastern front, the Russians might not be as deeply defended there. So that would be the place to attack. I don't want to guess, and because what I've learned is the Ukrainians tend to have their own internal military logic, and their military logic now is to try and achieve a significant destructive effect on the Russian army, and they will do that where they believe they can do that most effectively.
0: So that's when the offensive starts, Phillips. But what do you expect the Ukrainians to try to achieve, other than retraining and retooling, uh, before it culminates?
1: Uh, Their number one goal is to destroy the Russian army because they want to liberate their territory. And the way they can liberate their territory is to uh, weaken the Russian army, which is a vulnerable institution and shows some significant strategic shortcomings. A defeat is if they have to culminate that operation with the Russian army still in relatively good shape. So if the Ukrainians start that offensive and they end up culminating a few weeks later, having made a few modest gains, but the Russian army is basically fighting well and intact. That's a Ukrainian defeat.
0: So, you know, last year, you know, the outside world looking on could see that Ukraine made big territorial gains or regains. Sort of it proved that the little guy proved that it could best Russia that it wouldn't always be beaten by by its bigger opponent and, you know, perhaps bolstered the case that it was worth supporting Ukraine with weapons and so on. But if Ukraine falls short in this forthcoming campaign, could that change the equation?
1: I mean, absolutely. The, the fear that a number of Ukrainians mentioned to me when I was there, this is their fear, that they launched this offensive. They do okay. They make some advances, but they don't take back all their territory. The Russian army remains intact and in sort of occupation of a significant amount of Ukraine. And then basically they're forced to sign a peace deal, which hands over Crimea legally to Russia and significant parts of the Donbass. That's their fear. And basically the United States and other countries force Ukraine to sign a bad peace deal. So they don't want to do that, and that's why I think they're being very cautious with this offensive and making sure they're they're right. But they absolutely understand that they they could receive a lot of pressure to sign a deal they don't want to sign if the offensive doesn't go as well as they hope.
0: Finally, Phillips, you, you were recently in Kiev, and you wrote about some of your experiences on your Substack blog, which, by the way, we'll link to in the podcast show notes for any listener who wants to take a look. But you wrote that. As part of a university delegation, you were given what you called extremely high access across a range of Ukrainian governmental, military, economic, productive, and civil society actors. Now, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in your blog about your trip, but one thing that struck me was your reflection of the intense stress that the Ukrainian leadership and decision makers are under after a full year of war with such high stakes and with no end in sight. Stress, you know, as we know, uh, takes a a terrible personal toll. How significant a factor is that in the war? How How much more of this are the Ukrainian leaders going to be able to take?
1: Well, thankfully, at least the Ukrainian leaders tend to be younger. I compared it actually to the Second World War, where the stress took an enormous toll on the leaders and they were older, probably killed Franklin Roosevelt off, off early. Certainly the Ukrainian leadership, you know, this has been a year that a human being is not normally expected to undergo, that they have to work massive number of hours feeling enormous amounts of responsibility. And by the way, with the idea that the, they're probably assassination squads out to get many of them. Yeah, you know, they have to live under very high security. That was one of the things about going to these meetings in Kiev. You didn't know where you were going and who you would meet often until just before you got there. That uh, you would, and you, know, you you really would be driven around, and and clearly they, they they didn't want to. They wanted to make sure they weren't being followed, and you would go and have a, a a meeting with a high level person in a rather nondescript building that didn't even look like a government ministry. So this is something that they've been living under now for 15 months, 14 to 15 months. And that has definitely made a a psychological impression on them. And I'm sure they need a vacation. All of the Ukrainians need a break after the intense stress. I didn't have a sense they were near a breaking point, uh, probably because they are younger than, say, the Russians, much younger than Putin and, and the coterie around Putin. But it certainly is one that you you can only keep this up for so long. I mean, I think, and I don't want to put a number on it, but, you know, a few more years of this and almost anyone would would crack.
0: Phillips, thank you very much. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, including coverage of the war in Ukraine, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.